Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist's Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. Since the 1950s, there has been a rapid rise in the incidence of allergic diseases, particularly in Western countries. Experts agree that the rapid increase in cases is not due to increased awareness, and the genetics behind allergies have not changed. But the environment has changed. Genetic predisposition affects the likelihood of developing allergies, but the environment acts on genetic background. In this month's episode, we discuss the epigenetic origins of allergies and asthma and explore the environmental exposures that affect our generation and the next. Tiffany Garbett from the Scientist's Creative Services team spoke with John Holloway, Professor of Allergy and Respiratory Genetics and Associate Dean of Research at the University of Southampton, to learn more. Winter will soon come to an end. The ice will melt, the sun will shine, birds will sing, and the trees will blossom. It sounds like a princess movie. But if you are one of the 50 million Americans who suffer from seasonal allergies, it may sound more like... (laughs) Pollen is coming. And with it, itchy eyes, runny nose, scratchy throat, and uncontrollable sneezing. The environment and allergies are inevitably linked. But connecting how environmental exposure modifies genetic predisposition for allergies is not always easy. In the fields of epigenetics, researchers explore how marks added to our DNA via environmental exposures cause changes in gene expression. John Holloway has studied the genetics of allergies for more than 20 years and has expanded its efforts to explore the influence of epigenetic changes as well. In a 2016 study, Holloway and his team made the surprising discovery that the season in which a person is born affects their likelihood of developing allergies. We know that some people are genetically susceptible to developing allergic disease. So that's both the propensity to be allergic to something, to generate IgE antibody responses to a specific allergen. If you generate these allergic immune responses, will you develop a specific allergic condition such as asthma or eczema or hay fever? All of those have a genetic component to susceptibility. But we also know that genetics is only a part of an individual's susceptibility, that it's the interaction between their genetics and environmental exposures at susceptible windows in the life course that will determine whether someone becomes allergic or not. While working on identifying genetic variants related to allergies and asthma, Holloway found that some differences in the risk of developing allergic disease depended on whether or not the father or mother had an allergic disease. In these cases, the child inherited an imprinted gene. Imprinted genes carry methylation marks that alter gene expression depending on whether it was inherited from the mother or the father. Often genomic imprinting results in a gene being expressed only in the chromosome inherited from one parent. In this case, Holloway's team observed that mothers with asthma had daughters with asthma, and that fathers with asthma had sons with asthma. Observing these sex-specific effects sparked an idea in Holloway. It suggested that epigenetic modifications might influence the underpinnings of allergies and asthma, and could possibly be used as a predictor of these diseases. As his first foray into epigenetics research, Holloway decided to explore the role of epigenetics in seasonal allergies. The reason we looked at seasonal birth is because, two reasons. One, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that seasonal birth might be important in development of allergic disease. Uh, And second was we were just beginning our studies of 
uh, DNA methylation. And what I wanted for our first example, if you like, was to pick an environmental exposure where we could be certain of the exposure. So if you think of something like smoking, as an example, if you're using maternal report of smoking, you might not be 100% sure that what's been reported is what's actually occurred. And it can also be confounded by many other exposures. And so we thought for our first analysis, we would pick an exposure which couldn't be confounded by anything else. Holloway and his team investigated the DNA methylation patterns of individuals recruited for a longitudinal study in England and discovered that people born in autumn and winter had an increased risk for allergic diseases such as asthma. They also discovered that birth season was not as random or as fixed as they initially presumed. People with higher socioeconomic status are more likely to time their pregnancies, resulting in more spring and summer births. Birth season was also not as insulated from the environment as they had hoped. The season a person is born indicates the season they were in utero for the first and second trimester. It also dictates the season of conception. Evidence from studies in Africa suggests that conception during the rainy or wet season changes the epigenetic marks at birth. In westernized countries, micronutrient content in the diet of pregnant moms also varies throughout the year and correlates with the availability of fresh food and the length of time that food is stored in supermarkets before it is eaten, which may also affect epigenetics. The season a person is born also ties to the season they are exposed to in postnatal life. So we don't know whether the season you were born into is marking an exposure that occurred before or after birth that's timed with the seasons. Postnatal exposure could be, for example, if we're thinking about asthma, it could be how old were you when you experienced your first winter respiratory virus season? Were you born into winter and you got your first cold in your first couple of months of life, or were you born into spring or early summer and didn't uh, encounter that first respiratory virus infection until you were six to nine months old and perhaps your immune system was a bit more mature? We also know that vitamin D levels vary with season because uh, most of our vitamin D uh, depends on UV light exposure. And so both the infant's vitamin D uh, in postnatal life and the amount of vitamin D they're exposed to in utero, which depends on uh, the mother's UV exposure and then transport across the placenta, will vary with season. So we don't know what seasonal factor might be changing risk of allergic disease, uh, whether it's the postnatal allergen exposure, so pollen changing with the season or respiratory viruses, or whether it's prenatal, mother's diet or uh, vitamin D levels uh, may be accounting for this uh, seasonal effect. This sort of new field of epigenetic epidemiology that has been facilitated by changes in technology that enable us to look at you know, hundreds of thousands of CPG sites across the genome relatively cheaply means that we can generate all this data, but interpreting it and trying to understand it is going to be uh, much harder and it's going to take a lot more work. And we're probably going to need to move between animal models and cellular models and, and human data. Observations in animal models suggest that some information acquired through environmental exposure can be passed on through multiple generations. Observing these transgenerational effects in humans is more difficult. 
Unlike animal subjects that can be observed quickly over multiple generations in a controlled environmental setting, observing humans through multiple generations would take longer than the career of any one scientist. It is also impossible, not to mention unethical, to control the environment of humans. Instead, scientists turn to cross-sectional and longitudinal studies. In cross-sectional studies, scientists recruit middle-aged individuals and then collect information on their children and grandchildren. These studies are useful for quickly assessing multiple generations at a given time point, but they do not provide longitudinal observations on any of the generations. In contrast, longitudinal studies observe individuals throughout their entire life. I'm involved in studies that have taken both approaches. So in our Isle of Wight birth cohort that was established by my colleague Hassan Arshad in 1989, uh, so the individuals are over 30 now, and uh, we have information on their parents that we collected at the time they were born. We have information from them throughout their lives, so we've followed the birth cohort uh, at multiple time points, age 4, 10, 18, and then 26 was the latest. Uh, but we've also now recruited women in the cohort who've become pregnant or men in the cohort whose partners have become pregnant. We've tried to recruit them back into what we call the third generation study. And now we're following about 500 children of our children so that we have information across three generations. And then in a separate project with colleagues uh, at the University of Bergen in Norway, uh, something called the Rhinessa cohort, they've taken the opposite approach. So there they had a cohort of individuals that were originally recruited as adults. And then they've gone to them and got information on their parents and also on their children and in some cases grandchildren. So we, we've got information across three or four generations that way. But of course, it's cross-sectional. Uh, at each time point, uh, but it means you can do all the generations in one go. Uh, it means we only have information at one time point. Uh, we don't have information throughout their life because we've gone to them as adults. In a recent study of the Reynessa cohort led by Cicely Svanes, scientists found that fathers who smoked in their adolescence were more likely to have children who developed asthma than fathers who did not smoke in their youth. The study lines up with animal studies that show that some effects caused by environmental exposure can be passed down through both the maternal and paternal lines. In some ways, paternal exposures have been neglected because people always thought, well, it didn't really matter what the father was exposed to because no information would be passed to the next generation. Whereas uh, pregnant mothers, whether it's maternal smoking or diet or a whole range of other factors we know are important to the development of the offspring. And, and that's all tied up in the, in the developmental origins of health and disease. It is plausible that epigenetic marks acquired during pregnancy from environmental exposures are passed down to the woman's daughters and granddaughters because the oocytes develop and form in female fetuses while they are still in the womb. If a woman is exposed to an environmental stimulus while carrying a female child, that child may also be exposed to that environmental stimulus and the resulting epigenetic changes. If the developing oocytes in the fetus are also altered, that child's children may also be affected by the same environmental stimulus their grandmother experienced. The possibility of men passing on epigenetic marks to their offspring was considered unlikely because the body has built-in mechanisms to erase such marks. After fertilization, the epigenetic landscape of the zygote is cleared and DNA methylation marks are removed in the formation of primordial germ cells as well. There are observations in animal models 
to suggest that some information of past environmental exposure can be conveyed through multiple generations. And it's in an animal model that's uh, easier to uh, observe because you can expose animals to an environmental exposure and then you can look across multiple generations relatively quickly and you can be sure that the subsequent generations aren't exposed to that environment because it's in a controlled experimental setting. It's much harder to do that in humans. Generations take a little bit longer and it's very hard to control the environment of individuals across decades. So the evidence to support transgenerational effects in humans is much, much more limited. In terms of epigenetic measurements at the moment, in humans, we don't really have any idea about what epigenetic mechanisms are important. So we know from, from work of others looking at animal models that one possible mechanism for passing this information is through small non-coding RNAs and gametes, but again, they're quite hard to observe in humans or even to collect specimens. Like Holloway, most scientists exploring transgenerational effects originally collected samples from human cohorts as part of studies of genetic sequence variation. Using DNA methylation as an indicator of environmental exposure is a matter of practicality and convenience. However, some scientists are now looking for non-coding RNA expression in sperm and seeing if it is different in men who are exposed to an environmental stimulus compared to those who are unexposed. Other scientists have turned to animal models. By injecting microRNAs into mouse gametes, scientists have shown that some environmental exposures can be recapitulated in the offspring, suggesting that the transfer of non-coding RNAs into a fertilized embryo might be a possible mechanism of conveying epigenetic modifications transgenerationally. DNA methylation is a relatively stable epigenetic modification, and all the DNA samples that people like me that have been studying genetic variation and doing linkage in families and now large genome-wide association studies, all those DNA samples I have in the freezer, we can still use to measure DNA methylation. Whereas if I wanted to measure chromatin changes, I would have needed to take fresh samples and to process them differently. And we can't go back in time. So, you know, the individuals that were born in 1989, where we had Guthrie cards, so those dried blood spots that are collected at birth, uh, even though we didn't collect a cord blood sample, we could go back some 25 years later and extract enough DNA out of those blood spots to uh, measure DNA methylation, which is great because you've got that, that window back in time. It's not the whole story. Uh, and there are things we are missing. I'm almost certain that DNA methylation is not the information that's being passed through meiosis and transgenerational effects, because uh, we know that biologically that these rounds of wiping the methylome during formation of gametes and during the early blastocyst, there might be escape. Some people have hypothesized that maybe there's specific regions of the genomes that escape or partially escape this wiping. Methylation patterns change depending on the tissue type. Methylation patterns also change with age or disease. It is difficult for scientists to discern if specific DNA methylation marks existed before the disease or developed after the disease. By using birth cohorts with stored samples, Holloway and his team can look at methylation patterns before disease develops and hopefully identify what changed when someone developed the disease. Scientists like Holloway can also explore how environmental exposures in pregnancy cause changes in DNA methylation patterns that persist over time. In a study led by Stephanie London from the Pregnancy and Childhood Epigenetics Consortium, scientists found a specific DNA methylation signature in the cord blood of infants that were exposed to cigarette smoke in utero. 
We also know that if we look at individuals where we've got DNA methylation data from blood at age 30, 40, or even 50, we can still see that specific DNA methylation signature if their mother smoked during pregnancy. So that specific example says that in utero environmental exposure leaves a DNA methylation signature that can persist across the life course, uh, whether that individual smokes themselves or not. What we don't know at this stage is what the consequences are of that DNA methylation signature that's being laid down in early life. Does it alter the way that individual then responds to the same environmental exposure in their life course? But if you try and think of perhaps an evolutionary reason why you would want to maintain those signatures throughout the life course, well, it's possibly because you're being adapted to be born into an environment. So if your mother's being exposed to something in pregnancy, you're adapting to be born into that uh, environment. Now, if you think about transgenerational effects being passed through more than one generation, that may also be uh, an evolutionary mechanism to allow rapid adaptation to an environmental change in a time frame that natural selection couldn't work to. This is in line with the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, or DOHAD hypothesis, which states that exposure to certain environmental influences during critical periods of development and growth may have significant consequences on an individual's short- and long-term health. The DOHAD hypothesis suggests that it's the mismatch between what you are adapted to be born into and what you encounter in your own life that may cause risk for chronic disease later in life. People born with mothers who have a low uh, nutrient diet, but then they're born into a society that's changing and maybe diets change and they adopt a westernized diet in their own life, there you've got a mismatch between what they've been adapted to be born into and then what they later encounter. So epidemiologically, that's where you see those strongest associations, if you like, uh, between early life and later disease. Considering that epigenetic marks are acquired by environmental exposures over the course of a person's life and that methylation marks can change, is it then possible to change our epigenetic marks by changing our environment? According to Holloway, this is theoretically possible, but no one has been able to do that yet. Even in animal models, we don't really know uh, how those epigenetic changes are targeted and what would be the right exposure to correct, if you like, an adverse uh, epigenetic start to life. Where this sort of research is likely to have the most impact soonest is in perhaps identifying those that are at risk of uh, developing disease and then targeting them for lifestyle modifications to prevent disease. So, for example, in other projects in my laboratory, I have a student who's developing Uh, machine learning models to try and uh, predict which infants will develop asthma. Um, And then we're trying to incorporate uh, genetic risk scores and then hopefully methylation risk scores as well to see if that improves the prediction. Uh, Because while at the moment there isn't any interventions that we know about that will prevent development of asthma, several uh, ideas, several studies that suggest that might be possible. But if you're going to do that, or even if you're going to design a trial to see if you can prevent asthma, you need to know which children to try and target. What are the high-risk children? But if we can develop these risk scores that incorporate methylation data, we might 
be able to better predict which children are at risk of developing allergic disease and therefore target them with prevention, whether that's changing the level of allergens in the home, whether that's telling them that they should get a dog because we know that infants who, who grow up with a dog in the home are less likely to develop allergic disease or whatever it might be. Holloway and his team continue to explore the genetic and epigenetic origins of allergies and asthma by moving between human studies and animal studies. Currently, they use an animal model to expose young male mice to cigarette smoke in a controlled environment. They then breed the animals to see if they can recapitulate the epidemiological effects observed in humans. Although Holloway focuses on allergies and asthma, he noted that epigenetics likely plays a role in a number of other human diseases. If we go back to the diehard hypothesis, we know that early life exposures uh, associate with a range of adult phenotypes, whether that's uh, bone health, uh, lung function in adult life, or heart disease, or hypertension, things like that. The reason many people have started with asthma and allergies is because they mainly develop in childhood. If you're starting a birth cohort, some of the first outcomes you will get are allergic disease outcomes. You can look at sensitization by the time the child's maybe three or four, and you can have a fairly reliable diagnosis of asthma by the time they're five. Whereas if you're looking at high blood pressure, you're not going to get readout from your birth cohort until maybe someone is 30 or 40. I think the most intriguing things that we've published recently have been some of the papers coming out of the Ronessa cohort led by my colleague Cecily Svarnes, where we see these hints that transgenerational effects may occur in humans. This idea that whether a man started smoking in his teenage years or not has an effect on the health of his offspring. Last year, we published a paper seeing whether we could see a methylation signature in offspring, depending on whether the father smoked before conception of the child or not. It was very preliminary at small numbers of subjects, and we're doing a much bigger study at the moment. But there were some hints to suggest that we might see a, an epigenetic signature in the offspring, depending on whether the father smoked, particularly in puberty, before conception of their child. We, we definitely need to confirm it in a much bigger study and, and replicate it in other cohorts. But to me, that's very exciting to see that perhaps these effects may occur in humans. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Tiffany Garbutt. Join us next month as we explore the role of mitochondrial energy production in disease. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.